The song that was just sung a couple minutes ago just gets me excited about next week, doesn't it? Resurrection Sunday. Of course, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. It's why we meet on Sundays. But next week is going to be a beautiful thing. Um, And Friday night, if you can be here for a Good Friday service, don't miss that. It's wonderful to remember the glory of the death of Christ. This is our hope that he died in our place. So I hope you'll come. I don't normally make announcements before I preach, but this is, this is important. I hope you'll, you'll be there. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you because you have given us so much to praise you for, and we will spend eternity discovering other things for which you are worthy of glory and honor and praise because you have put it in our hearts to know you, to know you. Not just know about you, but to know you, to relate to you, to be in constant, ever-present relationship with you. And so, Father, we give you praise for that. This is not something that everyone in the world has, but only those who, by grace, through faith, have put the full weight of their trust upon you. And so we praise you. We look forward not only to today's message from your word, but to next week as we celebrate the resurrection of our dear Savior. And bless us now, Father. Help us to think deeply about some truth that we don't talk about much. And may it be like a wonderful food, a banquet, a feast for us as we think about the perseverance of the saints and as we think about what it means to be a faithful minister and a faithful church Oh, Father, be glorified in us and change us by these truths from your word. And we give you thanks and praise for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And if you could stand with me, I'm just going to read this whole chapter. And, um, and we'll come back and talk about why I'm reading the whole chapter later. <clears throat> 1 Timothy chapter 4, follow along with me. I'm reading out of the ESV. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith, of the faith, and of the good doctrine which you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise to the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Come, command and Teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift which you have been given by prophecy when the council of elders laid hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress and keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will, pay attention to these words, you will save both yourself, Timothy, and your hearers. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. If you have ever studied 1 Timothy or you have listened to some good preaching on the epistle of 1 Timothy, then you, you know this passage offers a great deal of instruction on the priorities and practices of those who lead the church. No doubt about that. In fact, we're 
going to see some of those priorities and practices this morning as we work our way through this text. But as I mentioned last week, Paul's concern goes beyond what a faithful minister or pastor does. And I prefer the term minister because diakonos, as I showed last week, is the word here. And so the application is not only for me, uh, this text is not just for me, it is for all of you as well. In fact, Paul has a concern that transcends even the man of God's personal character and reputation. Man of God simply being the name that, that Paul uses for Timothy and for Titus and for others who were called into the kind of ministry that I do. The man of God. But his concern transcends even the man of God's character and reputation. Paul is concerned that the believers in the church of Ephesus, including Timothy himself, including Timothy himself, would not fall away from the faith. Do not think for a moment that a minister like Timothy, a follower of the Apostle Paul, could not possibly fall away. We spent an enormous amount of time in the message last week, percentage-wise, just looking at the pastoral epistles and seeing the names of the people, some of whom served with the Apostle Paul and yet were shipwrecked in the end relative to their faith. Six by name, and many more perhaps that he didn't name and just talked about what they fell into. The Apostle Paul in this text wants to steal them against apostasy. He wants them to remain until the end. He wants them to be true, to be faithful until the end. He wants them to die well, to die faithfully following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to put a theological label on this, you might say Paul here is alluding to the doctrine of perseverance, or more formally, the perseverance of the saints. What is the doctrine of perseverance? Well, I want to make sure that this sermon remains a sermon and not a lecture on soteriology. And so let me see if I can boil it down. The doctrine of perseverance says this. You ready? Perseverance says that everyone whom God saves, God will keep until the end. He will keep you until the end. When God the Father adopts a person into his family... He forms a permanent relationship with that person that cannot ever be broken. Most of us know this teaching by a different name. Uh, Most of us grew up calling it eternal security, which I think is a bit of a a misnomer, and I don't want to take a lot of time on that, but the concern about that terminology is this. Um, From that which I think is a weak label, from a weak label, we get the following statement. Once saved, always saved. Now, is that true? Yes, that is true. It's just not complete. What do you mean, once saved, always saved? I think a better way of saying it is, if saved, always saved. And honestly, that's Paul's concern here, that there are people in the local church in the church of Ephesus, who had perhaps fallen into the false teaching that was so prevalent, and they are convinced that they know Christ, and they don't. And they don't know it. And nobody around them knows it. Paul's concern is kind of summarized at the very last verse when he says, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Save, what do you mean save? Save them from the influence of the false teachers that will lead them astray, cause them to make shipwreck of their faith and demonstrate that they never belonged to Christ from the beginning. I think the point of this text is that every Sunday there is a spiritual battle going on for the souls of men. And I want to deal with this very carefully because you can misunderstand this. You can fall off the beam in either direction. You can fall off the beam by concluding that 
Genuine believers can lose their salvation, and that's wrong. Or you can fall off the beam and say, once I'm saved, I can just live however I want to, and that's wrong. I can live like a lost person as long as I prayed that prayer. And there are people who believe that. Just go downtown. You'll meet them. Share the gospel with people. You'll find the kingdom Baptist will come and tell you, all you got to do is pray this prayer, and you're in. You're just in. If you really meant it, whatever that means. And, and that's wrong. And so it's, it's so important for us to understand this. The doctrine of perseverance says that everyone whom God saves, God keeps until the end. It's a permanent arrangement. It is, in a sense, eternal security. Now, I think the most concise and theologically rich biblical statement on this doctrine is in Romans. And so I know you're in 1 Timothy. Keep your finger there because we're going to come back. But Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. The Puritans called it the great eight. And because there is so much in Romans 8. And I want you to look with me at verse 35. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified, and listen to this one, and those whom he justified, he, what class? He glorified. Now, isn't that an interesting word at the end? Why is that past tense? I mean, how many of you have been glorified? How many of you want to be glorified, you know? Um, we all look forward to resurrection. Not Jesus' resurrection, that really has already happened, but it's because of that resurrection that we will one day experience the fulfillment of our salvation in total. That is resurrection. Sin will be no more. Your body of flesh will be done away. You will be given a glorified body, and you will live with Christ before the throne of God and do whatever he wants us to do forever and ever on the new earth. Um, and we look forward to that. We live for that. We long for that. And those of you who are suffering or are close to people who are suffering, you live for the resurrection. Paul said, if the dead are not raised, why in the world did I fight the wild beasts in Ephesus? If the dead are not raised. Notice that even though your glorification has not yet happened, Paul refers to it as if it already has. Why? The final salvation of the elect is so secure that Paul can speak of it as if it has already taken place. And I love one Puritan scholar said, um, those who have died are more joyful than we are, but they are not any more secure. We are as secure as they are. God will cause us to persevere until the end. This, beloved, is eternal security. It assumes the doctrine of perseverance, that every person who enters God's family by grace through faith will be kept secure until the end. Let me give you some other text. Romans 8. You're in Romans 8, so let's look at another verse. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the implied answer is no one. And there are some who will say, well, nobody outside of me can. I mean, I can. I could lose my salvation. I could, I could give it up. And to which we would respond, you're going to have to show me that in a text of Scripture, because check out this list. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Jump down to verse 37. In all these things, we 
are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That pretty much covers it. Unless you want to make yourself out to be stronger and have greater sway over eternity than any of these entities... And how about this one? And I'm just giving you a sample here. There are many. John 6, 37 through 40. Just, just listen to this. You can write that reference down. John 6, 37 through 40. Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Now, who will he not cast out? Those who come to him. And who will come to him? All those whom the Father gives him. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Once again, connection with the future resurrection, your glorification. Jesus is saying, I will, I will, I will. There are some, these, uh, these texts are some of the sweetest and most comforting passages in the Bible for those who love Christ. And so many of you have it memorized. This is nothing new, but I hope it's fresh to you. I hope it's fresh to you. There are many other passages like this, and we rejoice with confidence that believers have security in God's promise to keep us from falling away until we see him face to face. However, and this however takes away nothing from what we just read. However, the doctrine of eternal security is often thought, is often thought about in incomplete ways. And by that I mean That doctrine is sweet all by itself, but it's not the only, these are not the only passages that speak of our relationship with God relative to eternity. The reality is also that some who sit in church week after week and even have confidence in their salvation will not finally and ultimately be saved. In other words, they will They will fall away. Witness verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Some will fall away. But we already know the doctrine of perseverance says, if you belong to Christ, you will not fall away. And yet here's Paul saying, but some will fall away. From what? From the faith, the faith. Not just faith, the faith. Which is a reference to the true gospel. They have pledged allegiance, as it were, to the true gospel. They would claim to be as Christian as you are. And so verse 1 of our text um, should make us ask questions. How do I reconcile this? How can it be that those who are truly in the faith will be preserved until the end, and yet some will fall away? We know some will indeed fall away from the faith. There are some who are not only secure in their salvation, but they're surrounded by people who would affirm their faith is real, And yet they will fall away. Witness Judas Iscariot. No one thought that he would fall away. 
I mean, even on the very night that he was betrayed, even though on that night Jesus said that one of them would fall away. And what was the disciples' response? What, is it me? Is it me? They weren't saying, Judas, (laughs) busted, buddy, we knew. They didn't have a clue who it was. I mean, think about it. Judas got sent out with the other disciples, two by two, announcing the coming of the Messiah, no doubt participating in, in the miracles. Could he be one that Jesus referred to, that on the last day some will call and say, but Lord, didn't we do mighty miracles in your name? And he says, depart from me. Judas is a, it's a huge warning for religious people in local churches. You see, beloved, there is more going on in our church gatherings than simply fellowship and instruction and wonderful singing. There's more going on here. We just can't see it. There is a war on for your soul, for the souls of many. In every church, there are people who sincerely believe that they are children of God, and yet who will finally fall away, proving that they never actually belong to Christ to begin with. And there are others who gloriously, they come into the church in that state. They're convinced that they know Christ. And they hear the gospel week after week after week. And they're influenced by brothers and sisters in Christ. And one day, by the grace of God, they wake up. And I'm not going to tell you my dad's story again, but it is so wonderful that he came here thinking that he was a child of God, believing all of his life that he was a child of God. And and one day the Holy Spirit moved into his heart, took out the heart of stone, did spiritual heart surgery, right? Heart, uh, Heart transplant. Took out the dead heart of stone and replaced it with a living heart of flesh. And it changed everything. But it doesn't always happen that way. An important text in this whole discussion is 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. The Apostle John explains all of this when he says, he says something about those who fell away. He says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For, here's the explanation, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Okay, you see perseverance there. But they went out. And another explanation. That it might become plain that they are not of us. John is teaching us here that these who have fallen away were in fact not true believers who lost their salvation They were not true believers who lost their salvation, but rather they were professing believers who were members of the church and did not actually know the Lord. Consider also such New Testament texts as the following, Matthew 7, 21 and 22. Here's a sobering text if there ever was one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Matthew 10, 21 and 22, Jesus teaches, brother will deliver brother over to death and father and child, uh, father his children and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Colossians 1, 22 and 23 What I want you to see here is that there's two ways to fall off the beam. Again, you can say, um, my salvation is secure, therefore my life doesn't matter. Or you can say, I better be careful, I'll lose my salvation if I do the wrong thing. And both of those are wrong. And so we have passages like this, Colossians 1, 22 and 23. 
He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, now get the picture. One day Jesus is going to present you before the Father holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We see that again in Jude. I did that benediction at the end of the service. And then he throws in this caveat, verse 21. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And then again, Hebrews three fourteen. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what do we learn from these very clear statements of Scripture? We learn, number one, that God sovereignly preserves his own until they receive final salvation. Number two, we learn that some who belong to local congregations will fall away and prove that they never belonged to Christ to begin with, though it seemed that they did. Number three, we learn that God's sovereignty over our perseverance does not, and this is critical, God's sovereignty over our perseverance does not nullify man's responsibility in his or her perseverance. Remember, of all the elements of our salvation, we looked at the Ordo Salutis, you know, that was kind of heady stuff, right? And uh, we saw that some of the elements of salvation, God does monergistically, does them all by himself, and he doesn't ask for our participation. But there are a couple of occasions when he does involve us. And by that I mean, it's not that he does his part and we do our part. Rather, it's he does his part, and he does it through us. Our sanctification is intrinsically tied to our perseverance because God is at work transforming us, conforming us in the image of Christ and and giving us the will and the power to participate in that. Hence, Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. John MacArthur on this point writes this. While all true believers are sovereignly preserved in their salvation by the almighty power of God, his sovereignty in no way eliminates their responsibility to persevere in the faith throughout their lives. Let me, can I just show you this in one text, both of these in one text. Turn with me to Jude, that very passage that I I read at the end of almost every worship service. And we've looked at this before, but now's the time to, to see it again. Now, look at verse 20. Watch this. Now, I want you to pay attention to the word keep, because keep here means persevere, right? Verse 20, but you, beloved, this is Jude, verse 20. There's only one chapter. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Watch this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, look at the doxology at the end. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory and majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Here's what we see. Keep yourself knowing, being absolutely persuaded that God is keeping you. He is keeping you. You are participating in God's sovereignty over your responsibility over here. Both are true and necessary as much as it ever was, even in your salvation. Does man have a responsibility in his salvation, in the salvation equation, in the salvation matrix? Yes, he does. It's limited and it is dependent. God sovereignly rules over your salvation. 
And his rule is independent of anything that we do relative to exercising faith unto eternal life. Jude is showing us this balance because you are being kept by God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. You know what the theme is throughout chapter 4 of 1 Timothy? Timothy, don't be a slacker. It's dangerous. Don't be a slacker about your spiritual life. It's dangerous. Don't be a slacker about what you teach. Don't be a slacker about your doctrine. Don't be a slack about, don't be slack about your shepherding the flock because there's more at stake here than you know. There are things going on in the hearts of people that will make or break eternity for them. And so then, when we see that here in the last verse, persist in these things, this is 1 Timothy 4, 16, persist in these things, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You will save them. You will save them from falling away. You will do everything that a faithful minister can do to keep people from falling away. No, I know it's not always presented like this, and it's complicated, isn't it? There's some complexity to this. But it's wonderful because it motivates us. And, and you know what? When we're faithful, when we're faithful at the things that God calls us to do, think about this. God tells us, persevere till the end. And then... He gives us the grace to persevere to the end. And then, when we get to the end, he rewards us for persevering to the end. I mean, how good is that? It's great. And Augustine knew this. is why he said, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. He saw texts like this and realized, this isn't about me pulling myself up by my bootstraps. God is at work. If I have any desire to obey, if there is any obedience in me at all, it is because God is at work. He's giving me the desire and he's giving me the capacity to fulfill the very thing that he commanded all the while he has us in Jesus' hand and the Father has Jesus in his hand and no one can take us out of his hand. And it all works together. John Piper writes, What is at stake in pastoral administration and in preaching is not merely the church's progress in sanctification, but the perseverance, but its perseverance in final salvation. Perseverance. Do you realize that perseverance isn't only as it's presented in the Bible? It's not merely about resting in Jesus. It is that. I don't want to take anything away from resting in Jesus. But it also calls for your involvement as fruit of your faith. Not the root of your faith, but as fruit of your faith. We are not saved by our good works, Ephesians, 4, Ephesians 2 says. We are saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see sovereignty there? And yet God doesn't obey for us. He doesn't believe for us. He doesn't resist sin for us. He empowers us to do those things for his great glory. And then in the end, we will get to heaven before the judgment seat of God. And the Lord will reward us, reward us for the things that we have done in obedience to his word. And we will take all those rewards, as it were, and we will cast them at his feet because we will know that it wasn't us. It was always him. It was always him. So you see, Paul's concern here is about much more than simply getting the priorities and practices of the local church in order. His ultimate goal for Timothy is to apply the means of grace to himself and his hearers in such a manner that will result in their final salvation before the throne of God. And Paul is concerned about Timothy's perseverance and that of every member of the church of Ephesus. Now this brings us back to the eight characteristics of a faithful minister. 
And last week, we looked at the first four, which were these, and they're in your notes. Faithful minister declares what is often unpopular, just called to teach things that people don't want to hear. Secondly, he pursues personal holiness. We talked about sanctification, progressive sanctification. Number three, he finds courage in the character of God. What is the character of God? Is the character of God to save, to save all people, and, and specifically those who believe. And then number four, he strives to model a gospel-shaped life. And we still have some time, so let's see if we can get through the rest of these. Number five. Now, the two sections of this sermon are not unrelated. We're talking about perseverance. And I would submit to you that these eight things, and, and, and eight, you know, I divided them up so that we could hang our thoughts on them. And you may divide them into five or six or whatever. But these things that Paul is calling on Timothy to do, he's calling them to do them as the fruit of salvation that demonstrates that God is preserving us and him to the end. And so what, are, what is one of the things he does? Well, here's the fifth thing, uh, as I see it, that he is called to do. He devotes himself to the ministry of the scriptures. The ministry of the scriptures. Look at verses um, 11 and 13. Verse 11, command and teach these things. And then verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now back to verse 11. There's, there is a presumption of authority here. Command and teach these things. When Timothy stood before the people to teach and preach, he was to do so with a borrowed authority. It was not his own authority. It was a borrowed authority. It was an authority that comes from God through his word. His confidence in power was not to arise from the force of his personality or the charisma of his presentation, but out of the conviction that what he taught is the very word of God. Paul says, I believe, therefore I speak. I believe these truths, therefore I'm compelled to speak them. If you believe them, you must speak them. If you're not speaking them, perhaps you don't believe them. And we see this affirmed in verse 13, where he says, until I come, devote yourself, here's three things, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Literally, the verse doesn't, it does not say, um, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Here's what it says. Until I come, devote yourself to the reading, the exhortation, and the teaching. Um, when you insert the word public, you automatically think worship service, right? And certainly it is not less than that, but I would suggest to you that it is more. The reading was a reference to reading the text of Scripture to believers. This was the ground and the basis of the whole worship service in the, in the beginning of the church. And it is taken from the practices of the synagogue. We even see Jesus on one occasion went into the synagogue. They handed him a scroll and he stood up. The whole body stands up for the reading of the scripture. Then he wrapped up the scroll and he handed it back and sat down to teach. They always sat to teach. Even on the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds gathered and Jesus sat down to teach. They read the scripture first. They read the scripture first. And if you haven't been at Calvary very long, you may not have taken note about this. But the reality is, from the very beginning, the very first thing we do here is not sing. It's not, that's not where we start. My conviction is, if you walk into this room at 10.15, and uh, you're here at the beginning of the worship service, if you get an emergency phone call five minutes later and have to leave, you will have already heard from God because we have already read the scriptures. And this is why uh, we have Keith Reed in the beginning. Usually I have a text that I pray through when we pray 
Today, I made it a point not just to read the text that I'm preaching out of, but the whole chapter to make the point that we are to be readers of Scripture. We are to be hearers of Scripture. We should love the Scriptures. Jesus said, here's here's a characteristic of a true believer. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. You see the connection between God's salvation and, and, and persevering grace and our responsibility in that? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. God sovereignly knows us. And they follow me. That's their responsibility. And I give to them eternal life. That's sovereignty again. It's all through the scriptures. But the presentation of it starts with the reading of the word. The the teacher of the morning would first stand up and read a a scripture. It might be a long passage. It might be a short one. But there was always the reading of the scriptures. I have a pastor friend who once uh, was preaching through 1 Peter, and he had the congregation stand, and he said, let let us read the scriptures. And he read all of 1 Peter, (laughs) the whole book, I mean the whole letter, right? And then he preached with what time was left. And really, it didn't take that long. It took like eight minutes, ten minutes at the most. And afterwards, a brother came up to him and he said, Brother, you read the entire book. I mean, it took ten minutes. I could have done that at home. And this fellow pastor said, Would you have? And he said, No. <laughs> um, one time here, I was uh, reading the scriptures, and, and I was reading out of, and I wanted to press this point, and so I read, I think, four stanzas of Psalm 119. And people came to me later and went, dude, that was a lot of reading. And then that week, we went to Shepherd's Conference, and Mark Dever got up and read all of Psalm 119. <laughs> and some of those brothers were with us, and I was like, dude, see? <laughs> We need to be devoted to the script. Now, consider this. T. David Gordon rightly highlights the fact that believers today, this is a quote, believers today have great difficulty even imagining what it was like to be a believer in the first 15 centuries of the church when no individual owned a book. Nobody owned a book, and therefore, no individual owned the Bible. And when the, entire, when the entire encounter with inscripturated revelation was exclusively in the public reading of the Bible, you came to church to hear the Bible read because you couldn't read it at home. You couldn't have your daddy read it to you unless he was the ruler of the synagogue. Nobody had a book any book. And so they devoted themselves to the reading of Scripture. That's why Paul says, devote yourself to this. Read from God's Word. It's the only way people hear directly from God. Read the Scriptures. So before there was any teaching or preaching in the church, there was first the reading of the text. And unfortunately, many churches today have completely dispensed with the reading of of Scripture. They make time for special music and other creative expressions of Christian belief, but no place is given to the reading of the Word of God. And beloved, this should not be the case in any church. You can hold up your Bible and say, I believe it. This is my Bible. I believe what it says, it, you know, what it says, whatever. And uh, there's a church in Houston that does that, and then they put their Bible under their seat because they don't need it for the rest of the service. Beloved, this is God's word. This is how God speaks. If you want to hear from God, hear from him first out of his word. And so our conviction is when I stand up to preach, when Keith stands up to preach, or anybody stands up to preach, let them read the word first. And if you're not going to read the whole, the whole section, at least read what you're about to preach next first so that we have a feel for what God has actually said, and then explain it to us. And that's where the teaching comes in. Or exhortation. Exhortation is second. Exhortation calls for a response from the hearers. 
They were not merely to, to be hearers of the word, as James says, but be doers of the word as well. And as the preacher or discipler or counselor was to take the word of God and what it said and help the hearer understand what God's word was calling them to do. How do I respond? Maybe it's worship. Maybe it's confession of sin. Maybe there's something I I must actually go and do, say something to someone, repent or encourage or pursue change in some way, whatever it is. But exhortation, you should never leave the worship service without knowing that you have been exhorted to become more like Christ and given at least some hooks to hang those thoughts on so that the Holy Spirit can direct you, perhaps with help of someone in the body of Christ, so that you can grow and change. And then the third thing is the teaching. He says, um, verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the reading, to the exhortation, and to the teaching. And the teaching involved the explanation of the text. Uh, What does this particular text mean? Not, what does it mean to me? (laughs) Who cares what it means to you? Uh, What did it mean to Paul? What did it mean to Peter when he wrote it? What did it mean to God when he inspired those men to write it? That's the first question, not what does it mean to me? you You can twist the Bible to make it mean anything you want it to mean. And, um... What did God intend to communicate in this passage? It's substantiated by the immediate context and the larger context. The minister of the word is to read the text, explain the text, and apply the text. That's what he's saying here. Read the text, exhort with the text, teach with it. Explain the text. And why did Paul make teaching last? Why didn't he say, read the text and, uh, and, and teach the text and then exhort with the text. Uh, my best guess on that is that teaching was, uh, was where all of this is moving. And it is a requirement of the elders. The one thing that makes their qualifications different than deacons is that they have to be apt to teach. If we had time, I could take you through 1 Timothy uh, and 2 Timothy and Titus and show you the number of times Paul just says, give yourself to the teaching. Make sure you're teaching. Make sure you're teaching. Make sure the teacher is qualified. He needs to teach. Teach, 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 teach. It's all about teaching. You start with the reading. And then you explain it. That's the teaching. And then you apply it. And beloved, that applies to all of us. Um, this is not just for the preachers, not just for the Sunday school leader, uh, the Sunday school teacher. It's for you. There are going to be days people are going to come to you and they say, listen, I got, I got questions. Can you give me answers? You ought to be able to say, let's turn to this text. And then let's turn to this text. And I'm going to explain the text. And I'm going to exhort with the text. And if I can't think of a text, I can call someone, I, someone else in the body who will help me come up with a text in its context so that my help to someone else is truly the word of God. So a faithful minister, again, it's not just me, it's you too. You've been called to be the ministers in the, in the local church, and the pastors are called to equip you for that. So a lot of my teaching is, I want to explain what's happening here, and I want to explain why, so that you will be equipped to do the same thing. So a faithful ministry, minister devotes himself to the ministry of the Word of God. His goal is not merely to encourage people with religion or to proclaim his own ideas about how to improve one's life. No, his calling is to proclaim God's message, God's Word, to anyone who will hear. He's to read the text, explain the text, apply the text. This, like no other means of grace, will ensure salvation both for yourself and your hearers. If it's different than Scripture, we don't want it. And perhaps if it's the same as Scripture, we don't need it. We have the Scriptures. May we be people of the book. Okay, number six. A faithful minister does not neglect his spiritual gift. Verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders or the presbytery laid their hands on you. Uh, in the Greek, 
there's a greater sense of urgency than what's communicated here in the ESV. And Paul's not saying, um, do not neglect, as if this were a vague possibility. It, it's, it's more clear, more emphatic in the Greek, um, that he is saying, stop neglecting your spiritual gift. Stop neglecting your gift, Timothy. You want to be a faithful minister? Then get busy. Use your gift. You don't have to do what everybody else's gift calls for. But you do have to use your gift, your charismata. Use it. And what was, what was Timothy's? Timothy, Timothy's gift was leadership and preaching, apparently. It, it certainly was preaching. But apparently, Timothy had begun neglecting his responsibility in regard to this area of giftedness. And it may very well be because of fear of man. I mean, here we've got a church he's been sent to. He's, he's a protege of the Apostle Paul. He's not the Apostle Paul. He's not even an Apostle at all. He is a helper of an Apostle. When he's sent to this church that's being ravaged by false teachers, would you be scared? Would you, would you be tenet, uh, tempted to be a little tentative and to back off and not say too much? Don't make too many waves? And perhaps that was true of Timothy. He was sent to teach and, and preach and exhort, and he was gifted to do it, but under the pressure of the false teachers, apparently he was slacking off. And Paul, so Paul says to him, stop neglecting your gift. And to some of you, the Holy Spirit is saying, stop neglecting your gift. God has gifted you, not just to reach the world. He has gifted you primarily to serve the body. How has he gifted you? Are you using your gift? Now, understand, a lot of times you're going to be called to step outside of your area of giftedness. And you're going to do things that you're not very good at and that you may not like. But you can do it joyfully, by faith, as unto the Lord. But are you using your gift? And Timothy was backing off. Timothy's um, spiritual gift was necessary to accomplish what, what the Apostle Paul sent him to do. Um, and Paul says here that Timothy's charismata, his spiritual gift, was in the area of, of as I said, leading and preaching. And apparently the members of his home church recognized this about Timothy before Paul came to their town. And Paul was there when the church affirmed Timothy's gift and laid hands on him as a sign of affirmation regarding his gifts. In fact, there had been a prophecy declared about Timothy regarding his future ministry on the day that the elders came and laid hands on him. I don't think the prophecy or that the laying of, of hands was the prophecy, the laying on of hands was simply affirmation. These were the elders of the local church and maybe churches. There were three of them that were real close together there. And it may be that all three churches came together and they said, Paul, take notice of this young man. And they, they set him aside for ministry and they laid hands on him. And by the way, you're going to see that here pretty soon. Um, did I bring up my dates here? Um, May 13th, we're going to have uh, Keith's uh, ordination exam. It's a Saturday, and you should come because you're the ones who have to vote on whether or not he gets ordained. And then May 14th, that's the next day, for those of us who aren't good with math, it's the day after the 13th, we vote as a body. And you know what will happen? We'll clear off this podium and the flowers, and we'll have Keith kneel here, and we'll lay hands on him. Not that we're delivering to him any kind of spiritual gift. He already has it. We're just affirming it. This is one of the things Calvary is all about, raising up young men like this. And God started that work long before we knew Keith in his life. There's another young man in this church that's been here almost his whole life. And for the first time ever, he taught adult Sunday school. And praise the Lord for you, John, wherever you are. You knocked it out of the park this morning. And praise God for that. We're hoping to give him an opportunity to preach before he finds a job somewhere else and has to leave. Um, but this is what the church is supposed to do. Raise up men. Train them. 
to do the work of the ministry, to equip others to ministry. So Paul's message to this young protege, Timothy, seems to be, Timothy, how can you hope to ensure the ultimate salvation of your hearers in the church of Ephesus apart from using your faithful, bold, authoritative preaching of the word of God? It's not going to happen. The false teachers are going to win and they're going to take with them to hell those that they deceive into following them. How can you justify not using your spiritual gift? The people of that church need you to be faithful, even in the face of opposition. So stop neglecting your spiritual gift. Get busy reading, exhorting, teaching the scriptures. Explain sound doctrine. Refute those who contradict. It's a hard job, but God will never give you, never call you to do something that he will not do through you. And beloved, this is a church, uh, this is a message the church of, in America needs to hear. Amen. Every time something appears to not be working, you just shift, you come up with something new, and you begin neglecting the, the, the foundational things that God has called us to do. Read the word, exhort with the word, teach the word, minister, look to yourself, to your doctrine. You know, I think, Never mind. <laughs> I, I just think, you know, in the churches that, that I've visited, I think if you were to say doctrine, somebody would fall out. Um, but it's the truth. It's the teaching. And we should love it. There was a day here early on at Calvary Bible Church, we used to interview people coming in and say, so what attracted you to Calvary Bible Church? And the first, I don't know, 20 families said, doctrine. Doctrine, we've been so hungry for the teaching. And not so much anymore. People come for other reasons. They have friends or they like the music or whatever it is. It ought to be the teaching. It ought to be the teaching. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. They love the teaching. This was Timothy's calling, and it's the calling of everyone who has opportunity to minister to others. Whatever your spiritual gift may be, I say to you, under the, by the authority of the word of God. Stop neglecting it. And you say, well, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Get busy and you'll find out. Somebody will tap you on the shoulder and say, you know what? You're not very good at this. <laughs> Why don't you try this? And what will happen is you'll find what, what the Lord has really gifted you to do. And... Um, I'm sure they'll do it with grace. The church needs your ministry. A faithful minister does not neglect his spiritual gift. Number seven, he does not neglect his own spiritual health. Verses 15 and 16a, practice these things. Timothy, practice these things. You practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep close watch on yourself and on your teaching. The word practice here means exercise. We've already seen that, right? And we see that in verse uh, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths, but train yourself, exercise yourself toward godliness. Exercise, take pains with these things. The word immerse here is sometimes translated, be absorbed, be absorbed in these things. The Greek simply says, be in them, be in them. Or it, it's, it's, it's more emphatic than that. It's be being in them. It's this constant. You're always in these. You're always in it. You're always in it. In these things. What are the these things? Well, um, I think all uh, the, the, the these things He's talking about that he should be, Timothy should be immersed in, and that you and I should be immersed in. He's already mentioned them. Often declaring what's unpopular, pursuing personal holiness, studying the character of God, striving to model gospel-shaped life, devoting yourself to the ministry of the scriptures, employing your spiritual gift, all of these things. Pay attention to yourself and to your doctrine. We shouldn't be just floating down the lazy river of the, of the Christian life. Because you know what's at the end of the river? Niagara Falls. And God has given you the capacity to swim upstream and to stand firm. You just strap on your spiritual armor, which is the gospel. Every piece of the armor is the gospel. A different piece of the gospel. 
Every day, every day, strap it on. As he faithfully immerses himself in these things, the faithful minister will make progress in his growth in these things. And it will be obvious to all. I remember when I was a young pastor, somebody came to me and they said, hey, you know what? Your preaching has really improved since, you've been, since you came. And I was like, oh, brother, that hurt. <laughs> like I wasn't great when I got here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then one time I was, I was working my way through the text and I thought, man, I shouldn't have had that response. I mean, I didn't, thankfully, didn't say that out loud. That's what I felt in my immaturity and, and self-centeredness. And then uh, one day, David Hornbrook, David doesn't know this, but he's probably listening to me. There he is right there. And he met me at the back door, and David always says what he thinks. And he, says, uh, he, said, he said, brother, you know what? In the past five years, your preaching has really improved. And I remembered this text. And I said, brother, thank you. Thank you. I need to know that I'm making progress in these things. I try to be immersed in them. And for your sake and for the good of the body, I want the progress in my life to be evident that I'm not who I was five years ago or 10 years ago or 23 years ago. Oh, please, when I came, I hope I'm not. But who we are and what we're becoming has an effect on other people. And it helps with God's, uh, Paul's ultimate goal here. He was growing in personal holiness. He was progressing in his knowledge and love for God. He's becoming a better example of a a gospel-shaped life. And even in his effectiveness, in his use of his spiritual gift. Paul's summary statement at the end of verse 16, keep close watch on yourself, on your teaching. Don't be so focused on ministry to others that you neglect to guard your own heart. And so, by the authority of Scripture, I say to you, and some of you are seminary students or you're Bible college students. I see you back there. I can spot you a mile away. And I would say to you, be careful. Be careful. The Word of God is not your textbook. It is your life. Knowing Christ isn't a a study of soteriology. It is your life. He is your Lord. He is your master. He should be your delight above anything. But if you see the study of God's word as life itself, then you will end up like the Pharisees. Jesus said uh, to the Pharisees, you think that in the word of God you will find life And I say to you, I am the life. It is in them that you find me. And I plead with you, make every day, every day, take time every day to look for Jesus in his word. Or you will become like one of these named brothers in the pastoral epistles who went shipwreck relative to their faith. Beloved, let there be no mistake, the Father will sovereignly bring each of his own safely home to heaven. But the means by which he achieves that sovereign design is through our ministry to one another. Perseverance is a community project. We need each other. We need each other in the church to help keep one another from falling prey to the influence of false teaching, and not only false teaching, but false impulses that arise out of our own hearts and lead us into sin and unbelief. And while this is primarily the responsibility of, an elders and of the elders in the local church, it is also the responsibility of all who desire to be faithful servants, faithful ministers in the local church. And of course, that means all of us. And if you want a text for that, let me read you one. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, that leads you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, day after day, so long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so a faithful ministry minister does not neglect his spiritual health. And finally, he never forgets what's at stake in his ministry. Eternal souls of religious people who come to church are at stake every week, every week. 
And they don't know it. But you do. Now you do. You know what's at stake in your life. You know what's at stake in the lives of the people around you. Let us not be complacent about our faith and our relationship with God. But may we persevere in them. May we be faithful to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's why Paul says fear and trembling. These are sobering realities. Can you lose your salvation? No. You cannot lose your salvation if you have it. But can you deceive yourself? Yes. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Rather, pursue these things. Make progress in them. Grow. Open your life. Open your heart before God. Have an open and honest attitude about sin. Invite people. Invite people to help you see about yourself what you cannot see. And grow and grow and grow. And in the end, you will, you will be so glad you did. And you will stand before Jesus Christ, having been brought to the Father by Christ himself, declared holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And you will know for certain that while you participated in the whole thing, it was all of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. These are difficult things. And yet they are sobering, and that's good for us. And they are, in their own right, encouraging to us. To know that you are devoted to keeping us. The Lord is our keeper. The Lord is our shade on our right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord is your keeper. He will keep your soul. He will guard your coming out going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forever. And to that we say, Lord, amen and amen.